Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to not find Jeremiah. I'd like for you to find the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we completed our journey through the book of Jeremiah, I was reminded again how rewarding it was. And think about this incredible book of prophecy, of difficulty, of persecution, a book that we spent almost two years in, and God in his sovereign sense of humor had me finish it in the snow on a camera just to get through it. And we come today to the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to begin an exposition of this book, verse by verse, that we will spend the rest of the year in, and we will spend part of 2023 in, as we walk through it, verse by verse, at times, word by word, and the reason I wanted to begin the book of 1 Corinthians and have wanted to preach this book for some time, a letter in the New Testament that I've never preached through systematically, I wanted to do it. Because to be human is to want to belong. To be human is to want to belong. From the time children gain their mobility and begin to play together, they begin grouping up. There'll be a group on the monkey bars, a group fighting over the ball for kickball, a group over to the side playing in the dirt. There's even a group that some of you are in eating the dirt on the playground. And no sooner do they become from toddlers to children, we begin to see them group around their interests, their various personalities. And we all know that middle school and high school are memorable to us because of the groups we so desperately wanted to be in. Perhaps you were a scholar and you wanted to be in that group that had the highest GPA. Maybe you aspired to be a great athlete and you wanted to be known as a jock. Others of you were beautiful and elegant and you were a part of a dance team or you were enthusiastic and enjoyed leading as a cheerleader. Some were more quiet, more reclusive. And what you find if you walk into any high school in any place in our great nation and you go into the cafeteria during the lunch hour when a portion of the student body is there, you'll find them sitting in the various groups, groups that have not changed, though their names and appearance may, they have not changed. And then at some point, when adulthood takes over, we begin to grow in our maturity, and we recognize that some of the ways that we grouped as children and adolescents and teenagers was childish, was immature, but adults aren't that much more mature. We tend to group up as well. We group around various hobbies and passions and interests and personalities, and to be honest with you, we are a part of many groups. You may be a part of an alumni association. You may find yourself at an HOA meeting you wish would be raptured out of by the Lord's second return. You may be in some sort of professional development group within your field of study. You may find yourself involved in civic or charitable organizations. Perhaps you enjoy philanthropy and enjoy giving back to the community, and so you align yourself, the Civitans or the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club. And there are multiple ways in which people group together. Now think about that in our day today. Think about groups like the progressives, the liberals, the conservatives, the republicans, the democrats, the black lives matter, the blue lives matter, 
the pro-business, anti-regulation, the pro-life, and those who are pro-abortion. In fact, you, you can't pull up a news app without finding within the headline of the story whomever you're reading and from whatever political sway it comes from, some identification of the group that the article is about. And it proves my point. To be human is to want to belong, to be a part. That's why I wanted to begin this series with you. Because like never before, it's important for the church to not be ashamed to be the church. For the people of God to proudly, not boastfully, not arrogantly, not conceit, but to proudly, with great confidence in our great Savior, say, of all the groups that I'm a part of, of all of the ways you may choose to categorize me, to compartmentalize my identity, of all the labels you can hang on me, I am most proud of being a part of the family of God. I am most proud to be a church member, to have brothers and sisters of the cross who bow only at the feet of Jesus. The book of 1 Corinthians is not the only book in the New Testament written to the church. In fact, almost all of them are. But uniquely, it covers a broad spectrum of issues in a Corinthian culture that is incredibly difficult for Christians to live out their faith within. And what you and I are going to find over this journey is we're going to find that for the church to be the church, the church ought to know what we believe, in whom we trust, and why we do what we do. Because not only are we people, we are persons. For example, the New Testament clearly addresses the church corporately. It refers to the church as the body of Christ. This is why we use family terms like brother and sister. But also, I recognize that even in a church like this, even standing and looking at a beautiful people in a tremendous facility like we have, I truly am only in charge of one part of the body of Christ. And you are as well. So not only do we have to study the book of 1 Corinthians as the people of God, we have to study the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians as the persons of God. And what you're going to find through this journey is that there's incredible personal application to your walk with Jesus, and there's incredible corporate application to the identity we have as the people of God who have been chosen to serve him in this place, in this location, and in this generation. So I hope you will enjoy this journey as much as me. Tomorrow when you go to work, if your work involves composing emails, you will open up your email platform, whatever you use, and you will click Compose or New Email. And when you do, at the very top, there will be three to four boxes. The first box is two, who the email is to. Then there are a couple of boxes where you can copy others. And if you have someone who needs to see the email, but them seeing the email does not need to be seen, you can blind copy others. And then the fourth box is a subject. So you can identify to the recipient what the email is about. 
and then you type your email. But unless you're going back and forth in an ongoing email, if you're composing a new one, almost all of you, especially those of you blessed by God to be raised in the South, will start out with a little chat. Hey, how are you? How's your family? Hope your new year is going well. There are some greetings that are customary in the way that we interact with someone, especially if we've not interacted with them in a while. We are the generation that lost letter writing. It's one of the reasons why I write several hand notes every single week. They carry a great deal of significance when people receive them. When you go and you watch documentaries of the Civil War, of World War I and World War II, often what is pieced together in those documentaries are letters written from the soldiers on the front lines and from the mothers and the fathers, the wives and the girlfriends back home. And we can see a magnificent amount of insight into the daily experience of what those people were living and tasting and seeing and smelling and hearing from the letters that they write. It is that type of mindset that we must have when we come to the New Testament. For the majority of the New Testament are letters. They are in fact correspondence specifically written by an author to a group of people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I only chose three verses to begin our time this morning. It probably won't take more than 70 or 74 minutes to work through these three verses. I'm just joking with you. But I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as we see the opening salutation of this letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, and the way you pronounce that is Sosthenes. Our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And this salutation ends with a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I am about to begin to preach through this book. And while I don't often pause for prayer in the midst of a sermon, I felt led to do so this morning. I want to confess to you my complete and total inability to communicate this letter to this precious church apart from your grace and your spirit. I recognize that in this room, there are many, many Christians who love you tremendously. There are those who, for the first time in their life, are beginning to be serious about their faith. There are others who are right on the edge of trusting Christ with their life, and you're working, and you're moving. And then there surely are some listening to this prayer who have never truly repented of their sin and believed in you. I confess to you this morning, it is impossible for one human being to be able to connect the Word of God to all those people. But I believe in the power of your Word. I believe in the gift to the church that is preaching. And I believe in your Holy Spirit 
who is able to take the frail vessel of the pastor and use him and anoint his words that they might help your people connect your word to their life for the glory of your son. So right now, in the name of Jesus, I dedicate the following expositions in 1 Corinthians to you. I pray you make us a more powerful, more anointed, more spirit-filled, more obedient, more joyous, more pure, more effective, more soul-winning church. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. There are only three parts to a greeting. First is the author. Verse 1, Paul. Who is Paul? Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and then a companion of his. Sosthenes or Sosthenes. Who is Paul? Well, even someone only slightly familiar with Christianity will have heard of the apostle Paul. He does not begin and is not introduced to us as Paul. Rather, he is Saul of Tarsus. He is a zealous Pharisee, a member of the Pharisaic council. He was a man Jewish to the core, trained as a Hebrew teacher of the law. So passionate to protect the version of first century Judaism that had been taught to him that he was a lead persecutor of Christians when Christianity was born after the resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who is stoned to death, is watched by Paul, who was then Saul, who held the cloaks, the outer garments of the men who had removed their coats so that they could have the full motion of their shoulder as they threw stones, taking and bludgering the life of Stephen. The Bible says Saul looked on and approved of what was taking place. Saul was persecuting the church. The Scripture tells us in the book of Acts that while Saul was on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a bright and shining light, a vision. This is important. This means Paul, who was Saul, saw the risen Lord. He had firsthand contact with Jesus. That's important because that is the definition of an apostle. My Bible teaches very clearly that the apostles were those who had firsthand knowledge and interaction with Jesus. This is why I would never identify myself as an apostle. It's why I would gently and lovingly disagree with modern-day ministers who would call themselves apostles. That title is reserved in the New Testament for those men who had personal, direct interaction with Jesus before or during or after, of course, his resurrection. Saul's life was changed. He became to be known as Paul. He was given a vision by God to go out and to preach the message. God took the person most qualified to persecute the church and turned him into the author of two-thirds of the New Testament. Two-thirds of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. He would have been fluent in at least a handful of languages. He could move in and out 
the Greek culture, the Roman culture, and the Jewish culture. He was the perfect credential list to be a minister to the Gentiles. So this is Paul. But Paul, as we're going to see through this journey, is being questioned. He's being pushed back against. His authority is being questioned. Paul, while he was very confident in the Lord, was never conceited. So right at the beginning, he says, Paul called by the will of God. Translation, Paul, who did not call himself. Paul, whose grandmother didn't send him to seminary. Paul, who's not doing this for the money or the fame. Paul, who by the will of God was called. How was he called? To be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother. Now, a little bit about the brother in just a moment. But this is Paul. Over the weeks to come, you'll learn more about him, his personality, his passions, his convictions, and who he was. But he is the author of the book of 1 Corinthians. Then you have the recipients. Look at verse 2. This is where we'll spend the lion's share of our time. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it's the church of God. Now, it's not to be thought of as the church of God down the street. There is a modern-day denomination called the church of God. There are the church of God in Christ. There's the church of Christ. There's the assembly of God. These are modern tags or labels given to denominations, many of them taking their cues from the Scripture. Paul here is not referring to a specific denomination. He's saying the church that belongs to God. Now, this is important. Because Paul is going to address people who have decided the validity of your church is determined by who your spiritual leader is. They were lining up behind particular ministers, particular elders, particular personalities. This was causing disunity within the church. And Paul is saying, this church doesn't belong to me. Doesn't belong to Apollos. Doesn't belong to Peter. Doesn't belong to Cephas. It belongs to God. It is his possession. And then in the greeting, something fascinating happens. Paul chooses to tack on some phrases to describe this church, phrases that I hope we remember describe us. Look what he says in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let me break this down for you because I believe it's important to understand the nature of the church. If we want to be the church that God has called us to be, if you want to be or aspire to be the member of the church that God has called you to be, you need to understand some aspects about the church. First, Paul points out their unique location. This is not to the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. This is to the church at Corinth. Now, where is Corinth. As I've always told you, I think it's important for you to sort of shape your mind globally. These places still exist today. Some of them may not exist in name. They may be underneath generations and generations of rubble. And some of the cities in the Bible still exist today. Rome, of course, still exists today. And there are other cities that you can go to. Where was ancient Corinth? 
If you were to go to an image of the Mediterranean Sea and you were to find the boot that is Italy, you'll notice just to the west of the boot is the nation of Greece, of course, the modern-day nation of Greece. And down in the south, there is a portion of southern Greece that is divided by a small sea, a small gulf, if you will. And right on the north shore of that, where you see this pin designated, is the city of Corinth. The ruins still are there today. There have been several iterations of villages that are built there, but it is still there today, and it was a significant place in the Roman world. In fact, it was a place where three cultures were intersecting. The ancient Greeks that built the city first, the Romans who now had control of the modern world, and there was a great Jewish influx of Jews from Jerusalem living in Corinth. The story of the book of 1 Corinthians is actually found in Acts chapter 18. Listen, if you will, briefly to how this unfolded. I'll just read the Word of God, and you take the liberty just to listen. After this, Paul is referring to his time in Athens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. You may have heard of Aquila and Priscilla. I think everybody should marry someone whose name rhymes with them. I'm just joking about that. A native of Pontus, Priscilla from Italy and his wife, or excuse me, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, so they were tent makers like Paul, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So this is what Paul did. Paul paid his own way. There was no established mission-sending agency. Paul worked, and he shared Christ. This is what he did. He was a bivocational missionary evangelist. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them. So Paul started in the synagogue with the Jews, and this is what he said to those Jews who would not receive Jesus. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a significant moment where Paul says, I wanted to reach my own people. Surely some of them were reached. But after I feel like I've evangelized the Jewish community, I'm going to go to the non-Jewish community, to the Gentiles. I'm going to begin to share my faith with people from a hundred different backgrounds, dozens of different languages, all kinds of culture and skin color was in Corinth. And this is what happened. The scripture goes on to tell us what happens in verse 7. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So the ruler believed. And together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So this church was planted. This is the tail end of his second missionary journey. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Church family, look at me. We have never before seen a more affront assault of the freedom religion as what we're seeing in our nation today. We are still incredibly free, but there is an agenda to position churches 
away from being able to freely proclaim the truth of God's word. As we unpack this book, I'll share with you specific examples, examples happening in lower courts in the United States today. And and if we might summarize this sermon into three words, though the world may push back, I hope our church can always say to one another, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Keep sharing the truth. Keep living the truth. Keep loving the truth. Keep making much of the Savior. Do not be afraid. I am not afraid. I want you to not fear. We all can have concerns. We can pray about complex matters. We can try our best to be sensitive and to be kind. But we will not apologize for the Word of God. We will not apologize. We will not. And it is the Word that gives us access to life and life that saves. If we truly love our culture, we will not be afraid. I am preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians because a church in Corinth was born because a man was not afraid to share the gospel. I will meet people in heaven who lived in Corinth, sinned in Corinth, struggled in Corinth, were discouraged in Corinth and believed in Corinth, were saved in Corinth, baptized in Corinth, and are in heaven today. And when the church is reunited, I hope and pray that we can testify to them that just as the Apostle Paul was not afraid, we were not afraid. If you continue to read the account of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is backdropped with Acts 18, you'll find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, they seized Sosthenes, or Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. We don't know for sure because his name's only mentioned twice, but most scholars think that this is a good indication that this ruler of the synagogue who was beaten for attempting to oppose Paul received compassion and mercy from Paul, and would later become a Christian. So much so that by the time we get to verse 1, he's mentioned in the greeting. Paul says, I'm here, and I'm not here alone. I'm with the former synagogue leader who was actually beaten by the Romans because he and others tried to oppose us. The Romans had no loyalty to Paul. They weren't defending Christianity. What they defended was peace and order at all costs. This was the Roman law. And so we find redemption in the greeting. These are the people of Corinth. But not only do they have a unique location, secondly, very quickly, they also have an undeserved separation. Look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, the word sanctified can mean several things in Scripture, but here it means to be set apart, to be pulled apart. Now, they're not set apart. They're not set apart because they've done anything to receive the mercy of God. They're set apart because upon their faith, God set them apart. And what we're going to find over the next few months is that he was ultimately saying You should be set apart in the way you handle law and lawsuits. The way you handle sex and love and marriage and divorce should be set apart from the world. 
You should be set apart when it comes to stumbling blocks in other people's lives. The integrity of your spiritual leader should look different. It should be set apart. The reverence and the order with which you have worship and the propriety, the proper way to gather and to worship should be set apart. Your hope in the resurrection should set you apart. The way you love and care and meet the needs of other saints should set you apart. One of the problems with the Western church is that it has begun to look more like the world than the church. And what we have to ask is, do our lives look differently, not because of a holier-than-thou attitude, but because upon our salvation it was declared to us in our churches and in our small groups and in our discipleship, I'm supposed to look different. Not for the sake of looking different, I just don't belong to myself anymore. I've been set apart. I've been pulled out of a life of sin out of a life of rebellion, and I'm supposed to live a life with the aroma of redemption in all my decision. Does your social media posts show that you are set apart? Does the kindness and the compassion with which you give toward those who may believe differently than you show that you are set apart? Not that I have any business nor desire to do so, but if you or I were to lay out our bank statements before the world, would it show that we are set apart in the priorities of our finances? Is the private language that we use with our loved ones set apart from the world? Is our parenting agenda and the agenda with which we approach our marriages different and is it set apart? It is all supposed to be set apart. And as we walk through this book, I'm gonna teach you from his word what that literally looks like. Now, now the people who are set apart, well, they have an unlikely designation. Third, an unlikely designation. You know what they're called? Saints. That's what the scripture says. Verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We have two incorrect views of the word saint. One incorrect view is that Saints are spiritually above the rest of us. This is driven, of course, by the doctrines of Roman Catholicism. That sainthood is somehow achieved by a certain class of spiritually elite through some sort of divine ordinance or the ability to work or perform the miraculous. Of course, there's no biblical precedence for that. It is a part of the tradition and the history of Roman Catholicism, a tradition and a history that we would say does not line up with the teachings of the New Testament. So for some, sainthood is hoped for but rarely achieved. That's not biblical. Another one that we tend to struggle with as evangelicals, as Protestants, would be that saints are those that are holier than thou. The story is told of a pastor who was trying to be faithful in a small, poor town. Needed a new worship center. Not only did he need a new worship center, he really needed some new nursery space, and the parking lot could use a fresh coat of asphalt. There were two well-known brothers in the town. Both of them were scoundrels. They had stepped on just about everybody in the town to make money. They were known to be men of wicked, wickedness. One of them died. Well, the young preacher was pretty good at preaching funerals. And so the other one went to him and said, son, if you'll preach my brother's funeral and you'll call him a saint of God, I'll write a check for you to have a new church, new nursery, and a brand new parking lot. The pastor said, I'll do it. The community was a little bit taken aback. 
This young man was a man of integrity. They'd always known him to tell the truth from the pulpit. So the place was full the day the man was buried. The pastor got up and he said, the man lying in this casket was a swindler, a sinner, unrepentant, womanizer, hurt many of you to chase a dollar. But compared to his brother on the front row, he's a saint of God. <laughs> Often that's how we view sainthood. That people are just better than us. We're just sinners and they're saints. Friend, listen, that's not what your Bible teaches. Your Bible teaches that any person who is born again is called a saint by the living God. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find God ever referring to his children as sinners anymore. Can you imagine the grace of that? Now, we are sinners, and we know we sin. But our Father, who declares us forgiven in Christ, no longer puts that label on us. He declares us saints of the living God, holy and set apart. Now, the interesting thing is, that's not achieved, that's received. That type of sainthood is not about my achievement. It's about my reception of his grace. But guess what else your New Testament teaches you? It's what I'm going to teach you through this series. That when we are given the title of saint, called out of our sin into forgiveness, the validity of that decision, the authenticity of that positional change is shown in a desire for me to live up to what my daddy calls me. I want to live up to what my father has declared me to be. I want to be a faithful brother to the first brother, the firstborn of the dead, the Lord Jesus, who is our Lord and brother in the family of God. And so it is not to be taken lightly, but it is to be appreciated. And finally, I'll close with this. We have the universal participation. Look how verse 2 closes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. And there's where we get our series title. With all those, that'd be you and me, who in every place, that means Corinth or more, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In many ways, the Corinthians belong to me, and I belong to them. I hope you are ready to have your walk encouraged and challenged through this journey. Because Paul ends where I'd like to end with the greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical scholars will tell you that you got to be real careful in taking a common greeting and read into it more than is there. That is true. But I will tell you something interesting about grace and peace, which is a Christian greeting throughout the New Testament. They always come in that order. Grace must be in your life for you to have peace. And if you've ever experienced the peace of God, it's because of his grace. That's what I want over church at the meal. That's what I want in your life. Does not mean that we're absent from struggles or sorrows. You're going to find that the irony of this greeting <laughs> is that Paul is writing to a church that is misbehaving. 
He's writing to a church that has lost its way. He's writing to a church that you and I would talk about if they were in our community. I mean, things have gone awry. But Paul starts with reminding them what God has declared them to be and what he desires for their life. Grace and peace. Let's pray.